0: Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot Des Latham. This is episode 26 and we're focusing on one of the most conspiracy theory speckled accidents in history. The October 1986 crash of a Tupolev Tu-134 jetliner that was carrying Mozambican President Samora Michel. 37 of the 43 aboard died. To say that the accident is shrouded in controversy is a bit like asking if Vladimir Putin thinks he's Catherine the Great. A firm. This is one of those incidents where correlation does not prove causation, unless, of course, you're prone to conspiracy theories. A lot that could go wrong did on that Tupolev that day, and it led to the death of a man who was a symbol of post-colonial rebellion. This amplified the conspiracy theory avalanche and has driven folks into paroxysms of perpetual pontification. The plane deployed to transport Mozambique's president that October day was a Tupolev manufactured in 1980, Registration, Charlie 9, Charlie Alpha Alpha. It had flown around 1,100 hours since it rolled off the production line and had undergone its last major inspection in August 1984 in the Soviet Union, two years before. Service data records showed it had been maintained in accordance with its design and data recovered from the flight data recorder indicated the plane and all its systems were working properly at the time of the accident. The number of flight crew on the deck was substantial and they were all Russian. The Tupolev operated with a crew of five, which on the night of 19th October 1986 included 48-year-old Captain Yuri Yuktarevich Novodran, co-pilot 29-year-old Igor Petrovich Kartamyshev, flight engineer 37-year-old Vladimir Nobolisov, navigator 48-year-old Nikolovich Kudrashov, and 39-year-old radio operator Anatoly Shulipov. The crew was experienced in African aviation, and had logged many landings at Maputo Airport, day and night. Because it was October, there were no storms forecast, as Samora Michelle climbed aboard in Maputo for a flight to Mbala in northern Zambia. That was earlier on the 19th, heading off to meet Zambian President Kenneth Kaunda and Angolan President Eduardo Dos Santos. The Tupolev headed over Zimbabwe then refueled at Lusaka in Zambia, taking off once more, routing to Mbala, 1,260 kilometres north of Lusaka. After a day of discussions about regional issues, including the ongoing border war in Angola and the actions of RENAMO in Mozambique, Michel and his party reboarded the Tupolev at 1838 for a night flight home non-stop to Maputo. The weather at the port destination was partly cloudy, no storms forecast, and regarded as favourable with good visibility. Arrival time in Maputo set at 21 hours 25 and off they went. At 20 hours 46, the radio operator made contact with Maputo Air Traffic Control reporting their position over central Mozambique and saying they were continuing towards Maputo VHF omnidirectional range, the VOR navigation beacon. Just for those who don't know what a VOR is, it's like a lighthouse with two lights. One always shines through 360 degrees and can be picked up wherever you may be in relation to it, while a second conducts focused signal sweeps around the compass points at a set speed and you will only see this as it sweeps past your position. The constant signal pulses when the narrow beam passes north, which then permits an instrument on board to calculate the plane's position based on the phase difference between the pulse and the narrow signal's appearance at your position. An instrument in the aircraft calculates where the aircraft is in relation to the VRR station using this phase calculation. A pilot can then tune to a desired VR station and set an instrument on the panel known in those days as the Omni Bearing Sector, or OBS, to indicate which direction the aircraft should be steered in order to reach the station. These days, we use GNIS or GPS systems, but that was those days. At that point, the plane was maintaining an altitude of 35,000 feet. Then, at 21 hours 05, the crew radioed Maputo to say they were ready to begin descent and approach. Maputa told them to descend and report reaching 3,000 feet above ground level or when the runway lights were in sight. The crew began their descent for an ILS, or instrument landing, approach to runway 23. That means they were going to perform a series of maneuvers operating under instrument flight rules from an initial point to a landing, which is usually made visually. They would also arrive straight in, no turns or heading downwind or anything. Over the next five minutes, the aircraft's data recorder and radar showed it maintaining its required track towards Maputo with only minor deviations. It's what happened next that has the conspiracy theorists in raptures. Suddenly, at 21 hours 10, the plane began to turn to the right away from Maputo. It was a slow turn from a heading of 184, almost due south, to 221, magnetic, a change of 37 degrees. The captain said, making some turns. Couldn't it be straight? The navigator replied that the distance to Maputo was 100 kilometers, or around 54 nautical miles, and said that the VOR indicates that way. What was significant to aviation experts was that no further discussion ensued on the flight deck, although logic and cross-checking by the crew members would have alerted them to the fact that, with at least 100 kilometers to Maputo, in addition to being at a much higher altitude than usual when the turn was normally made, something wasn't right. The CVR recorded numerous things the flight crew failed to carry out. The top of descent checklist was one. Instead, a discussion on the flight deck ensued where arrangements were made with the cabin crew to provide the flight crew with some soft drinks and imported beers from the bar for the enjoyment later. Meanwhile, the co-pilot was listening to the news on the radio. The captain began to look around for a pen. Later, the South African media would allege they were drinking on the flight deck, but this was false reporting. Post-mortem tests showed they were clean, but they were fixating about their drinks for later. The co-pilot, the youngest of the lot, then noticed that the VOR was showing that Maputa was to the left and pointed that out to the captain. They were flying in a south southwesterly direction and Maputa was beginning to drift past on the eastern or port side. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew continued debating which of the beers and soft drinks they would prefer, divvying up the cans and all caught on the cockpit voice recorder, of course. Another few minutes ticked by, then the navigator was recorded by the CVR saying that Maputo was now 32 nautical miles or 60 kilometers away. The crew began to discuss whether or not the Maputo VOR was out of service. The captain said firmly, there is no Maputo and the electrical power is off, chaps, which is odd because Maputo ATC had not indicated any fault. The time was 21 hours 1721. It's true that Mozambique at that time was experiencing repeated blackouts and power failures for quite a few reasons. One is the system was overloaded and corruption had led to poor maintenance. Another was that the Renamo rebel movement had taken to sabotaging the country's infrastructure. But Maputo Airport was blessed with backup generators, which had fuel and were working, and the pilots knew this. Back on board the Tupolev carrying President Samora Michel, the navigator reported that the instrument landing system and the distance measuring equipment, or DME, at maputo Airport, were not working as well. We know they were, so they were now heading towards the wrong VOR and the ILS setting they had set and DME frequencies were of course now irrelevant. The navigator followed up by saying that not only was the ILS and DME faulty, but the non-directional beacons were also not working, the NDBs. Now you can blame Renamo for blowing up many things, but taking out all navigational systems simultaneously was obviously far-fetched. At 21 hours 17.42, the navigator had begun to realize things were not adding up, and he also noted that the ILS and other items were still not picking up on his instruments as he would expected. This was due to the actual position of the aircraft, which was now over 60 kilometers away from Aputo to the west. There is something that I don't understand, ah, he said. At 21 hours 17.49, the navigator then added, ILS switched off and DME. Well now, why didn't the crew ask the Mozambicans for a sit-rep regarding the VOR, ILS and NDB? Shortly after 21 hours 18, the plane reached 3,000 feet on descent and the crew informed Maputo that they were maintaining altitude. This was the minimum safe altitude over Maputo and should have been maintained until the airfield was in sight. The aircraft was, however, not maintaining its altitude. It continued to descend and nobody seemed to pick this up on the flight deck. Or if they did, they were ignoring that fact. Still in descent mode, the aircraft was approaching the ground rapidly. Moscow suggested later it's because they were cleared to land that the crew continued their descent. But they hadn't been cleared to land. They had been cleared for a visual approach, but not to descend past 3,000 feet. There's a big difference between those two. At 21 hours 19 minutes and 32 seconds the navigator gave an update on the distance which alarmed the captain saying it's still 25 to 30 kilometers. Now obviously they'd been descending for some time so clearly Maputo should have been well within sight. The captain queried the navigator and perhaps realizing that the distances and elapsed times didn't add up he said something is wrong chaps in Russian. Now remember the crew had been on duty for around 16 hours they were extremely tired. The Maputo controller then granted clearance for the plane to continue on his ILS approach to runway 230, but the crew told him that the ILS was faulty. The navigator said the distance to Maputo was now 16 nautical miles. They should have the runway lights in sight. Visibility was good, and the co-pilot suggested that not only were the VOR, ILS, and NDB not working, but the runway lights must have failed as well. Many straws were now being clutched, I'm afraid. This time they asked the Maputo controller to check runway lights. He affirmed all were working. Things were speeding up on the flight deck. They didn't have long to make decisions. Their window of life was closing. Distance to Maputo, 20 kilometers, said the navigator to his crew. Of course, the Russians aviate using meters, not nautical miles. That meant that Tupolev was around 10 miles from the runway, and by now they should definitely have seen those twin pins of light converging into the distance, let alone the lights of Maputo city which was still also absent. The aircraft continued to descend. The captain thinks out loud, I understand nothing. The radio operator says, Don't you see the runway yet? Captain, what runway? What are you talking about? Navigator says, We are going to straight-in approach. Captain says, We are doing straight-in approach. Navigator, No, well, can you see the runway? The co-pilot and captain, unable to see any runway, nor indeed the city of Maputo itself, then came to the conclusion that it was too cloudy. The standard procedure for cloudy conditions would have been to climb away and re-execute the approach and not try and maintain a visual landing process. During the period after climbing away, all the navigation aids, instrument landing systems and radar could have been used to confirm the actual position of the aircraft. Check your runway lights, repeated the crew. Working confirmed Maputo. As the plane reached 2,611 feet above ground, The ground proximity warning system began to sound and then remained on for the rest of the flight. The captain swore, damn it, but continued descending. There was 22 seconds to go to impact. Still no decision to go around. The crew radioed Maputo twice more during these seconds asking about the runway lights. A classic bad situation was going to turn catastrophic. I'm afraid their poor flight planning was now coming back to hurt them as well. You see, the crew had failed to ensure that they had sufficient fuel to fly to an alternative airfield, which is prescribed by aviation law. The pressure was on them to land at all costs. The captain was muttering, clouds, 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 to himself, and the navigator butted in, saying, No, no, there's nowhere to go, there's no NDBs, nothing. The captain said, Neither NDBs nor ILS, which were the last words recorded on the CVR. It was a very dark night. The moon had yet to rise. The ground, though, was rising up to smite the Tupolev, but the pilots seemed oblivious as they ignored the ground proximity warning system for 30 seconds. That's a very long time to hear that warning blaring away, and the Tupolev's warnings are also quite insistent. The plane hit the ground at 21 hours, 21 minutes and 39 seconds, approximately 35 nautical miles west of Maputo, in a hilly region at 2,185 feet or 666 meters. The devil's number had come into play. More grist for the conspiratorial mill. There was three-eighths cloud cover at 1,800 feet. The visibility was 10 kilometers. Back in Maputo, the ATC looked out for Samora Michelle's flight in vain, then alerted search and rescue. Of course, they started by looking in the wrong place. Throughout the rest of the night and into the early morning, the helicopters, planes and ground crews hunted around Maputo, even in Maputo Bay, in case the plane had ditched. What really set off the conspiratorial folks was the fact that the plane had crashed 150 metres inside South African territory. Their left wing hit a tree and the plane slid down a hill in this remote and quite inaccessible part of South Africa. The plane broke up, leaving a debris field over 2,200 feet, almost a kilometre long. Members of the Komatipur police station in South Africa were alerted to the crash by a villager living in Mbuzini and they rushed to the scene. That was at around 11pm on the night of the accident but the South Africans first had to decide what to do by telling the Mozambicans. Miraculously, passengers were still alive, as well as the flight engineer Vladimir Novalesov, when the South African police arrived, but not Samora Michel. He was listed as having died instantly. The first medical crew arrived at 1am, then at 4am a second medical support team flew in from Hutspreit Air Force Base and evacuated the survivors to Nelspreit Hospital in the Republic of South Africa. One survivor lingered on for two and a half months after the crash before passing away. This is where the story begins to get a little tricky. So far, we have a combination of factors leading to our old enemy, Seafit, controlled flight into terrain. That was far too simple, however, for the Russians and many others expert in the correlation causation red herring business, as you're going to hear. South African Foreign Minister Pik Berta was alerted early in the morning of the 20th of October immediately told President P.W. Berta that they had to try and deal with what would obviously be a diplomatic disaster. This was a massive event in Southern African history. So at 0650, South Africa formally notified the Mozambican government that a plane heading for Maputo had crashed near the border. At this point, Michelle had not formally been identified, so there was no confirmation of his passing. However, there was an informal confirmation that it was believed the president had not survived soon afterwards radio mozambique began playing funeral music and mozambique security minister sergio vieira and pick traveled to the crash site together and identified samora Michel's body the mozambique government issued a statement but did not accuse south africa of causing the darning of the plane although they said there was some criminal cause over the next few months the mozambicans refrained from blaming south africa that was remarkable because there was a civil war raging in the country and South Africa was meddling in the conflict by supporting the rebel Renamo movement fighting Michelle's government. You'd expect the Frilimo ruling party to immediately blame Pretoria, but they didn't. Other African countries were not so magnanimous and openly blamed the apartheid government, suggesting they'd shot down the plane. The cockpit voice recorder was found and analysed, along with the flight data recorder. The Tupolev had both digital and magnetic FDRs due to suspicions that one or the other would be tampered with as it was Michelle's official plane. So the SA Department of Transport investigated the crash and they approached the US's National Transportation Safety Board and the British Air Accidents Investigation Branch to assist. Both refused, so the South Africans hired three foreign investigators including aeronautical engineer Frank Borman, who was a former US test pilot, astronaut and CEO of Eastern Airlines. Jeffrey Wilkinson, former head of the British Department of Transport's Air Accident Investigation Branch, and Sir Edward Everly, who was former Lord Justice of Appeal and former member of the British Privy Council. South African Judge Cecil Margot chaired the six member body, and the hearings were public between January 20th and 26th, 1987. So the Michelle Inquiry rapidly threw out any suggestion of a bomb causing the crash and found that the 37-degree turn was initiated by the navigator using the autopilot's Doppler navigation mode. That's crucial. He did so because he apparently saw a VOR signal indicating that the aircraft had intercepted Maputo's VOR 45-degree radial, which is its compass direction from Maputo, which the crew needed to intercept in order to approach to land on runway 23. What happened was that the plane turned right into the path of another VOR nearby, which was thought to be the 45-degree radial at Matsapa Airport in Swaziland. But another allegation was made that the SA Defense Force had placed a decoy VOR beacon on the ground and the pilots were flying towards that instead. The reason why it's likely that Matsapa Airport VOR was the culprit is a simple matter of mistaken identity. The two frequencies were almost criminally close. Maputo is 112.7 and Matsapa in Swaziland 112.3. Usually VOR signals that are adjacent have different frequencies for obvious reasons. There's another fact here, the Soviet numerical system. The numbers 7 and 3 are very, very similar and the Tupolev suffered from a poor design of its instruments with no backlighting of the selected frequencies. Thirdly, the pilot had actually set up the VOR on his side to the ILS you heard about, not the approach VOR. So the captain was following the navigator's turns and he was using Doppler radar, not VOR. In the final stages of this flight, the aircraft was actually not following any VOR signal at all. Instead, the autopilot was tracking the 221 heading that the navigator had set, although one of the VRRs did actually have the Maputo frequency set correctly, but the pilot seemed to be ignoring it. Then there was the crew's insistence that both Maputo's ILS and VOR receivers were out of action. That was despite Maputo ATC confirming they were working and the airport had already been supplied with a backup generator. Furthermore, the crew failed to perform any checklist or check the navigational aid identification called IDENT, the procedure, and they were indulging in non-essential conversations during the descent into Maputo, divvying up the beer instead of aviating. They did not cross-check at any point during approach, so it was poor cockpit resource management. There were five of them. Too many cooks were spoiling the flight, to mix a metaphor and then the big one. The crew knew they did not have sufficient fuel on board and could not make the alternative airport at Beira. This increased the pressure on all five to continue approach into Maputo despite the obvious can of worms in the last few minutes. The crew also used non-standard aviation to speak when they asked Maputo ATC to check runway lights. In our language, that usually means affirm. We have seen runway lights. It's a confirmation. For example, we say, engine on. And the co-pilot selects engine and says, check, engine on. The final and deadliest mistake. They continued descending below 3,000 feet despite only being cleared to 3,000 and did so at a brisk 500 feet per minute until just before they hit the ground. With a few seconds to go, the captain did input a slight nose up, but hardly what we call a go-around. Had the crew performed the correct ground proximity warning system procedure when flying over hilly or unknown terrain by quickly raising the nose and increasing power, they would have survived. Reading this makes no sense. Why did the captain also fail to climb to the minimum safe altitude for Maputo of 3,600 feet when things began to go pear-shaped? So it was found that the cause was flight crew failing to follow procedures for an instrument let-down approach, descending under visual flight rules in the dark and some cloud Whereas visual flight rules stipulate some clear view of the ground, they were also below minimum safe altitude and minimum assigned altitude, and they ignored the ground proximity warning system. Shaking of head. Meanwhile, Mozambique had hired their own accident investigator, New Zealand Office of Air Accidents Official Ron Chippendale. He found that it would have been simple, he said, to set up a decoy VOR signal, but only if the Maputo VOR had been turned off, and it wasn't because the surviving VOR on board was still set to Maputo's frequency. Russia had their own pet theory. Because its pilots and crew were involved, Moscow issued a rebuttal of all South Africa's findings. They believed there was evidence of a decoy signal and said that the flight crew's failure to follow procedure wasn't the main cause and investigators should identify a decoy VOR. The Soviet allegations had a few fundamental flaws, and bear with me as I point them out. Firstly, they could not explain why the crew turned 37 degrees if the Maputo beacon was working. No decoy would have replaced the megahertz signal at that distance unless Maputo VOR was switched off, which would have entailed some kind of inside job conspiracy. Later, of course, the Mozambicans would come up with one, as you're going to hear. The Russians said Matsapa in Swaziland couldn't have been the false flag because it wasn't strong enough and the plane was too low to pick up the radio waves from that Swaziland beacon. The Soviets also said other planes had reported Maputo's VOR was stronger than usual, indicating the decoy was in fact in place, with one Mozambique airliner picking it up 190 nautical miles away that night. But that same pilot said it was Maputo's VOR, and he used it to land quite safely using the so-called decoy beacon. I'm afraid this Decoy story has been bandied around for so long by people who have no idea what a VOR actually looks like. It's huge. You can't drag it behind a bulldozer, let alone a truck, into an inhospitable area. Next time you pass your local airport, for those non-aviators listening, look out for the large round object with red and white square base covered in what looks like orange bulbs. It's a massive trampoline, Well, that's what it appears to be, and usually in line or close to the threshold of the runway. There's one at Lanceria, Fala, for example, where I fly, that is adjacent to the main road. Easy to see, hard to move. Then the Russians claimed the crew had been cleared below 3,000 feet because they had been granted visual landing clearance, but we know the final clearance to land was not granted and the crew themselves had confirmed they were maintaining 3,000 feet. A bigger problem for the our narrative is they could not explain why the crew believed everything on the ground wasn't working when it was then ignored AGC who confirmed the power was on. They couldn't see the landing lights and continued to try to land. The standard procedure is a go-around. Anything else is asking for trouble and it's drummed into us as pilots. They also studiously ignored the lack of reserved fuel. Just to finally deflate conspiracy theories, was pilots penetrated Mozambique airspace over the next few weeks to test the matsapa Swaziland VOR power theory and confirmed that it did reach north of Maputo, and could be picked up all the way down to 3,000 feet on the same approach. This was further corroborated by a number of commercial pilots who flew the same Charlie 9, Charlie Alpha Alpha track, who could also read this Matsapa VOR. Then, just to really muddy the waters, the Mozambicans cast around for a scapegoat, and their baleful gaze landed on the unfortunate AGC by the name of Antonio Cardoso de Jesus. They accused him of allegedly tampering with Maputa's beacon on the night of the crash, And that he had been given a 1.5 million rand bribe, a million US dollars back in those days, by the South Africans. And he was suspended in May 1988. Ten years later, in 1998, he told the Star newspaper that he was leading a miserable life in Mozambique, but he refused to say anything else. His superiors claimed later that he was suspended for ill health and not taking a bribe. So, the confusion continues. Safety-wise, this accident didn't cause much international response, other than the shock of a president of a country dying in a crash. It reinforced the obvious need to ensure reserve fuel, proper CRM, and adhering to checklists and approach procedure. The rule is clear. Any modern commercial or airline crew would immediately know that the 45-minute reserve is dangerously close to the minima prescribed for aircraft operations. These minimas state that sufficient fuel should be available to permit the aircraft to land at a suitable alternative airport when reaching the end of its journey plus 30 minutes worth of flying time. Their route back to Mobutu took them over central Mozambique. They passed a beam of Beira. A decision would have to have been made at that point whether to continue or divert and refuel. They decided it was a go, even though the fuel situation on board would have indicated that the crew would have a critical reserve once they reached Mabuto. They had begun to paint themselves into a corner. With no alternative available, then the 30 minutes of flying time becomes the minimum The Russians skipped that rule and paid for it with their lives, and so we must conclude that Moscow's story of decoy is itself a decoy. The captain made one mistake after another, and his biggest came at the end when he ignored the ground proximity warning system and then didn't go around. What are the decoys, red herrings, straw dolls, UFOs, nasty South Africans, blah blah cheesecake allegations? The truth is this. As a commercial pilot, had he survived, he would have never flown again. It was poor decision-making compounded by exhaustion. And I'm afraid... You don't need a decoy to kill a president when his aviators are mucking around below minimums clearly lost in debating who's going to get which heineken after a fit through and through i'm afraid since then every few years some local social media crackpot mutters about new evidence being found to prove a plot to kill michelle but it's just the usual grandstanding mumbo jumbo from that coven of politicians otherwise known as a thicket folks I'm going to come back to the U.S. Bangla Airlines flight 2 one accident of 2018 next episode. I'm afraid we've just run out of time. Until next, navigate, navigate, and communicate safely. Hola.